0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jenny Lee from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we welcome Professor Puck Brecker. Puck is a historian of early modern Jap- Japan, teaching and researching at the Washington State University. Actually, Puck did an interview with our channel last year on his previous book about autonomy in Japanese history. This time, Puck returns with his brand new book, Animal Care in Japanese Tradition, A Short History. It was recently published by the Association of Asian Studies in their Asia Shorts series. So this book provides a historical overview of how Japan has trained, controlled, and used animals. Situating Japan's relationship with animals in its historical and social context, this book identifies similarities between the Japanese animal care and the West and interrogates the term tradition that's been used to describe this history. So welcome back, Puck. Uh, it's good to see you again.
1: Thanks, Jingyi. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you. You've obviously been busy since our last chat uh, popped up another book so soon. And this topic, the topic of this book is quite different from your previous one. So how did you come to write on this one? How does how how did um, your projects develop? And is this book connected with your previous works in any way?
1: Yeah, so I think it's common to research and want to write about what you have an interest in, a personal interest in. Uh, the topic of my last book, which you just mentioned on private spheres and autonomy in Japanese history, uh, that was not a personal interest of mine. Um, I wrote it because uh, I thought it was it would be an important contribution to the field uh, and because it would fill a gap in scholarship on Japan. Uh, but this time I wanted to indulge myself uh, by researching my current, passion, which is animal care. Uh, I've been volunteering at an animal rescue facility close to where I live, and I took a course in wildlife rehabilitation. And on weekends, I go out looking for wildlife. So uh, I started researching traditional Japanese animal care simply because uh, there's not much out there about it, but also because I take personal pleasure in the topic. Um, I think I thought even a short introductory book like this one uh, could be informative to nearly everyone since so few people know about uh, this particular topic. So I did want to keep it short uh, and affordable, uh, but also make it accessible to a broad readership. So, in these ways, uh, the Asia Shorts series uh, fit those objectives perfectly.
0: Definitely. Now that uh, now that you've explained your personal reason behind it, it makes much more sense because some of the things you mentioned in the preface, I was hoping to see more of it in the body, but I guess um, um, we'll get into that later. Um, yeah, and this Asia short series is such a wonderful series. Um, I feel like any um, non-scholarly readers can just pick it up and uh, familiarize themselves with topics like this so it's absolutely wonderful
1: yeah i agree i'm I'm a big big fan of this series myself
0: yeah me too so how is this book structured
1: it's structured broadly chronologically uh, over six chapters uh, but it's also organized by categories of animals So broadly speaking, pets as one category, domesticated animals as a second category, and then wildlife as a third category. Uh, Obviously people cared for these different categories of animals very differently, uh, depending on those respective categories, proximity uh, to humans. So pets, for example, pets uh, often treated like members of the family, uh, they were also status symbols uh, in early Japan. And so pets carry great uh, em- emotional value, affective value. Um, domesticated animals, by which I mean livestock, of course were different. They held great economic value, uh, relatively less emotional value, um, <clears throat> Interestingly, pre-Meiji veterinary medicine was limited to this single category uh, of animal, Uh, animals with great economic value and talking about horses uh, and cattle specifically. Uh, There was no, really to speak of, no veterinary medicine focused on pets. Uh, And then there's a third category, wildlife. Wildlife. Uh, And there are two subcategories of wildlife. I suppose you could divide wildlife into uh, noxious animals, that is to say vermin, pets, uh, that are to be avoided or eliminated, exterminated. Um, And then the other subcategory, useful wildlife, uh, that can be used as meat or for their fur, uh, medicinal products. Uh, So wildlife had some material value, Uh, but no effective value. So uh, the book discusses these various categories of animals uh, separately. Um, And then how those categories of animals changed uh, historically, uh, changing economic pressures, changing values, of course, uh, reinvented those categories uh, and the attitudes connected with them.
0: Now, in the book, you mentioned that um, a discussion of animal care and control may not be a commonly seen topic in Japanese studies. But you argue that a better understanding of Japan's relationship with animal and nature can help us challenge some existing notions. So can you briefly talk about these assumptions, these existing notions that you're trying to challenge in this book?
1: Yeah, so that's an important question. Uh, It's it gets at the heart of one of the things that I'm doing uh, in this book. And I think how people talk about and think about Japan's treatment of animals closely reflects how they think about Japan and Japanese society more generally. So the history of animal care is very much the history of people. Uh, There are several schools of thought about the topic. Uh, and I'll just reduce it to two general schools of thought. So essentialistic uh, interpretations, Nihonjinron and this sort of thing, uh, look at Japanese thought uh, and religion, Buddhism and animism and so forth, to claim that humans are one with the natural world. Whereas Westerners seek dominion over the natural world. Uh, I think many listeners to this program uh, will be familiar with this argument. Uh, The evidence for this is the historical prevalence of vegetarianism, the bans on killing issued at various points in Japanese history, Uh, and then of course Tokugawa Tsunayoshi's compassion edicts uh, prohibiting uh, people from perpetrating any sort of harm upon animals. Uh, But the more we learn, the more we find that all of these are highly problematic uh, as historical evidence. Uh, The hunting bans were temporary and only applied to certain animals and certain seasons. They sought to promote agriculture, uh, which, of course, was a source of tax revenue for the government. And then Sunayoshi's edicts, these were an anomaly Uh, They were universally hated, they were largely ineffective, uh, and they were overturned after his death. Uh, I look at them as the exception that proves how dependent Japanese were on animals uh, and animal products. Okay, so that's one school of thinking about this. And then there's the opposite position, uh, which labels Japanese as environmental criminals, Uh, without any sort of moral conscience and who indiscriminately exploit wildlife for personal gain. Uh, You know, most, most famously Japanese commercial whaling and dolphin hunting, and then the, uh, extinction of Japanese wolves and otters and other species and so forth. And, uh, these arguments also note the absence, or in any case, the weakness of animal rights and animal welfare movements in Japan, uh, which they see as evidence of backwardness or uh, incivility and, and this sort of thing. And th- this narrative has been around forever, or at least you know since the Meiji period, and it still persists uh, today. So we have those two schools of thought, and I think uh, historical accuracy. Falls somewhere in the middle. Uh, the middle narrative is often missing <laughs> uh, among so much uh, polemical scholarship. Uh, just like everybody else, Japanese have always exploited animals, uh, but at the same time, they've also, I think, tread comparatively lightly uh, on its own environment. Uh, so Although the topic of the book is animal care, it's also very much a study of uh, Japanese history more broadly. Uh, and so, you know, as with everything else, the more we learn, uh, the more effectively we can dismiss the sorts of false assumptions that uh, I just mentioned.
0: Indeed, and it's such a difficult question to think about. I was completely shocked um, at when I first heard about Japan's consumption of whale and dolphins. I think I was in high school or middle school. But then when I actually talked to some uh, Japanese people from that generation, they didn't even realize um, what the critiques on them were about, because it was, for them, it was just a normal part of their daily life. I was hearing stories that um, one of my professors told me that, um, when they were in elementary school, their school lunch would have dolphin meat. And so they never it never occurred to them that it was seen by um, countries outside of Japan as a cruel act. And now that their tradition, so to speak, is being challenged, um, they had that confused... They had that confusion about what to think of their own culture. So I thought that was um, that was a really uh, great point that you mentioned in the first uh, chapters of your book. Now, you also get into the discussion of religion because it played such an important part in animal care since early times in Japan. So what are some of the concepts in Japanese religion that people use to theorize and practice animal control or care?
1: Yeah, okay, so uh... Japanese veterinary knowledge was of course, imported from China, uh, introduced from China in the seventh century. Uh, But in the process, it was uh, contorted uh, so as not to contradict with existing medical practices and religious practices. Uh, So traditional Japanese veterinary medicine then came to consist of a combination of spiritual treatments like prayer, uh, and exorcism, um, but also physical treatments like herbal medicines and moxibustion and needling or, uh, needling or acupuncture. Um, but they also depended on the day's animal. So, you know, every, every day I was associated with or connected with one of the animals of the Zodiac, the Chinese Zodiac. Right. Uh, so for example, uh, And I give this example in the book for illnesses uh, or maladies befalling, for example, a horse uh, on the day of the ox uh, called for application of needling and moxibustion, but also for worshiping the ox deity. Uh, This was done by cutting a peach branch uh, of a certain length uh, and then stroking the horse three times with it and then releasing the branch down the river. So um, I thought this is a good example of how medical treatments combined, combined knowledge of herbal medicine, but also retained uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, well, religious, pre-existing religious beliefs, uh, yeah, connected with healing.
0: That's interesting. And if, just out of curiosity, um, how how widely were um, stock animals um, held in households? Were they usually limited to more wealthy families, or were they just so necessary that each family, farm family would have one, that kind of thing?
1: Well, compared to Europe, uh, they were quite rare. <laughs> uh, you know, they were, they were quite valuable, uh, and expensive and expensive to keep, uh, and, you know, keeping them required a certain amount of land as well. Uh, so it was just, it was just the wealthy, it was just the elites, uh, that for the most part had cattle or oxen for agricultural purposes. Horses were almost exclusively used by, uh, the warrior class for warfare, um, and so these comments, I guess, pertain to er- early Japan and through through the uh, medieval period of Japan. Uh, things changed a little bit. The uh, horses and oxen both became somewhat more prevalent during the Edo period. Um, Western Japan had more oxen or cattle, and Eastern Japan were known more for their horses. But uh, in any case, th- the short answer to your question is... Uh, they were, they were commodities that were not really uh, accessible to oh, the common person, the common farmer, for example. Yeah.
0: Okay, thank you. That's really good to know. Um, now returning to the topic of veterinary practices, um, this perspective um, of uh, veterinary practice is a very innovative and intriguing one for me. So how did veterinary techniques develop over time. As you mentioned, um, as um, Chinese and Western medicine was introduced to Japan in different time periods, how did these influences change the Japanese tradition of animal healing?
1: Well, they changed it uh, enormously and and fundamentally. Uh, The book points out uh, a number of historical continuities in Japanese conceptualizations of animals and care of animals. But veterinary medicine, uh, the modernization, uh, the westernization of veterinary medicine was a major rupture. Um, of course, you know it involved overthrowing Chinese medical theory that had been embraced for some 1300 years. Um, and it also overturned the authority of Tradition or the need to seek truth in the distant past, uh, modern veterinary medicine took a completely different approach. Uh, it stressed, of course, the scientific method uh, and constantly sought new knowledge uh, and medical advances. So, you know, from the major years, although some people, some individuals continued to practice traditional treatments, herbal medicines, needling, and this sort of thing. Um, bona fide vets, trained vets, were schooled uh, and practiced European uh, or Western veterinary knowledge.
0: Okay, that's very interesting. And um, you also mentioned earlier um, about the tradition of keeping animals as pets. Um, well, I love pets, so I'd like to talk more about this. Um, from historical materials, we know that early modern Japan. Um, well, like uh, like the the shogun that you mentioned, it's he he loved pets. His um, the uh, we can we can delve more into um, his regulations about non-killing. But what kind of what kinds of pets did people keep, and how were they treated throughout history? And were there any changes or transformations in the ways that they treated or kept pets?
1: Yeah, there were changes uh, in how people uh, kept pets. Uh, Of course, the domestication of dogs in Japan goes back to the Jomon era. Uh, We know from Heian period literature uh, that courtiers kept pets, they kept lap dogs, uh, they kept cats uh, as pets as well. Uh, Birds were also popular pets in early Japan. Uh, and from the medieval period, people held uh, singing contests, or uta they were called, uh, for quails uh, and songbirds like warblers. Uh, children, of course, also collected pets, frogs, crickets, other insects. Uh, some people kept mice uh, as pets uh, and even experimented with crossbreeding mice. Um, and so all these pets were, were treasured, uh, just as pets were treasured today with the exception, I suppose, of larger dogs, um, medium-sized and larger dogs, which were generally allowed to roam around the house, or roam outside the house, uh, roam through the neighborhoods, uh, freely. So there was a rather looser conceptualization of, uh, dog ownership back then which of course caused problems because uh, it led to so many stray or semi, you know, semi feral dogs that became a problem, especially under Tsunayoshi. Uh, And then moving into the modern era. Yeah. So pet care changed. I suppose you could say it became more Westernized Uh, dogs and cats became the predominant family pet. And were kept inside the home, you know, as as they often are in in the United States and other Western countries. Uh, so, so yeah, that's that's how they changed.
0: <laughs> so we uh, briefly talked about um, the 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 I guess some of the misconceptions about Tanayoshi earlier, but. Um, For our listeners who might not be familiar with this period of history, can you tell us about what happened and why it takes such an important position in the history of animal care in Japan, Uh, Tsunayoshi's regulation on non-killing?
1: Yeah, well... So again, I, I view Tsunayoshi's compassion edicts really as an anomaly. And there were some, uh, I think, something like 130 of these uh, orders that he issued over the course of his reign as shogun. He was the fifth Tokugawa shogun. Um, and really, uh, draconian punishments were were handed out to people who had uh, harmed animals or who had failed to help animals in need even People were executed and banished, for example, um, f- for those types of transgressions. Uh, and, uh, of course people, people hated these, uh, laws, commoners hated them, uh, but also the samurai class hated not being able to hunt anymore. Uh, you know, the daimyo around the country loved their falconry, their hawking, right? Uh. Uh, And they also loved to hunt deer and other game. Uh, And now suddenly they were unable to do this. So uh, really it angered uh, just about everybody. Uh, And it also caused other forms of agricultural upheaval. You know, it led led to the proliferation of wild boar and deer and bears, all of which are agricultural pests. and so it had it had definite economic negative uh, consequences as well.
0: That's um, something that we often hear when people try to argue against the critiques on Japan's lack of animal care is that um, that would throw out this the uh, tsunayoshi and the the non killing um, of the Tokugawa period, but um, to. Well, I guess uh, for my last question, I do want to um, focus on your last chapter, as well as something you mentioned in the preface. So there have been various critiques on the ways that Japan treats animals today, um, whether with whale or dolphin hunting, or even with ivory importing. I actually did not know this until I read your book, that Japan is one of the largest countries of ivory importing and they have no regulation on this. So when Japan was trying to join the so-called modern nations in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, did animal care modernize as well? Or did did Japan's attitude towards animal care and the tradition, more more importantly, um, of animal care change?
1: Uh, it did change uh, it, and it did modernize, of course. Uh, like everything else during the Meiji era, uh, it did. Japanese veterinary medicine, as, as I mentioned, became modern, uh, by which I mean Western. Um, and then, you know, the animal welfare movement, the animal rights movement, uh, this also emerged in the middle of, uh, of the Meiji period. Um, and it came to reflect Western thinking uh, and values. And as in every, you know, as in every other facet of life, Japan was always racing to catch up with the West, and, and animal care was no different. Uh, and it was always finding itself a step behind the West. Uh, and this is a word, this word behind, it's a word I find used to describe Japanese animal care. Uh, and to define Japanese attitudes uh, about animals. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I suppose listeners can decide for themselves whether that, that word behind is fair or, or unfair. Um, I do want to note, though, I think it's important to realize that Japan learned from the West the very practices that it was later criticized for. Uh, you, you mentioned commercial whaling, Ivory imports trafficking in endangered species, et cetera. These are all Western industries. They are, because they continue to be Western industries. Uh, Well, not commercial whaling anymore. Um, And then there are other wildlife industries as well. Zoos, for example. And Japan has the second largest number of zoos in the world. Uh, Safari parks, aquariums. uh, You know, Japan is criticized for all of these. (coughs) and how it manages all of these. Uh, then there's the youth, euthanization of cats and dogs uh, in Japan. Uh, of <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of these uh, stray pets or abandoned pets are euthanized in Japan every year. Uh, but you know, these are practices that Japan learned from the West. Uh, and these are examples of modernization <laughs> the modernization of animal care, uh, you know, it's, we're horrified by these practices perhaps today, but nonetheless, uh, you know, these were the accepted standards of animal care uh, in the day. Uh, and so this is a case, I think, of modernization becoming a problem, uh, becoming a source of criticize, uh, criticism and Japan bashing. And uh, one of the arguments in my book is that There are many important continuities between pre-Meiji and modern Japan. Yes, Japanese attitudes have changed uh, somewhat, but what's often forgotten is how much Western attitudes towards animals have also changed during this time. And in fact, it's the change of Western attitudes uh, that has become more a source of criticism of Japan than, than Japanese tradition itself.
0: So this ties to, um, I guess this is one of the classic case of East against West tradition kind of argument. But fast forward to 2022, um, not to put more spotlight on your personal opinion here, but how do you view, as, um, as an enthusiast of wildlife protection, how do you view the Western critiques on Japan about their lack of animal care even till this day?
1: Well, the critiques have always been harsh and scathing, uh, and they continue to be today. But and of you know, of course, as an academic, I recognize the importance of of cultural relativism and remaining objective. But on a personal level, I believe the critiques are warranted and are necessary. Uh, you know, we live now and we now all of us uh, are contending with global environmental problems and biodiversity loss is one of those global problems that affects everybody. Uh, and so I think where it's time, it's past time uh, for everybody, Japan included, uh, and the United States included, to collaborate with the, the most progressive, uh, animal protection, biodiversity protection measures that they can, uh, in order to prevent further collapse of biodiversity and, and mass extinctions. So uh, you know, as much as I, as much as, as a scholar, I want to remain objective, uh, and distanced, uh, from this question. as much as I want to do that, though, I, I do think that harsh criticism is warranted, not just for Japan, but for many other societies as well.
0: That is so well said. And I'm so glad that you, your, your book can bring this view into conversation with um, studies in, Japanese, uh, in the field of Japanese studies.
1: Well, thank you, Jingyi. It was, uh, it was great to talk to you again.
0: Thank you. And I look forward to reading your um, new books next year, I suppose.
1: <laughs> well, we'll see.
0: <laughs> well, I hope that happens. But for our listeners, uh, to find out more about animal care in Japan's early modern history and modernization of Japan's animal care, make sure to check out this new book by Puck Brecker, uh, Animal Care in Japanese Tradition, A Short History. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.